When the dark figure appeared on the stairway below, I could see at once that it wasn't our tour guide. I uttered a startled cry as the huge man in the black cape stepped into view. Is this the way down? I stammered. He didn't reply. He didn't move. His eyes burned into mine. I struggled to see his face, but he kept it hidden in the shadow of the hat, pulled low over his forehead. I took a deep breath and tried again. We got separated from our group, I said. They must be waiting for us. Is this the way down? He glared up at us menacingly. He's so big, I realized. He blocks the entire stairway. Sir, I started. My brother and I... He pointed up at us. You will come with me now. I just stared at him. I didn't understand. You will come now, he repeated. I do not want to hurt you, but if you try to escape, I will have no choice. Hello, and welcome to Say Podcast and Die, the podcast where two queers sit in their closet and tell you about goosebumps. I'm Andy. I use they-them pronouns. I'm Alyssa. I use she-her pronouns. And today we are talking about Goosebumps number 27, A Night in Terror Tower. That's right. Another classic. Sometimes I noticed it's the Terror Tower in the book. Did you notice it goes back and forth? I did. As I was reading passages, I realized I was omitting the the, but I was like, you know what? I'm on a roll. I'm going to keep going. It's like the Facebook. Yeah. Drop the the. (laughs) This one, I don't think I'd read before. Really? I just wasn't very interested in medieval stuff. Interesting. Yeah, but I'm really glad I read it now because it was it was scary. Yeah. I mean, the ending is probably one of the most disturbing endings we've gotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in order, let's let's not jump. Let's not time travel. <laughs> Got to start at the very beginning, which is the cover. I think the guy on the cover of this one is even beefier than the masked mutant. Yeah, we're sort of on a trend with beefy dudes. This guy's wearing a green tunic. He's got a black hood over his head, so he can't see his face, and he's carrying a giant axe. And he has peach fuzz all over his arms and legs, I noticed. <laughs> like, soft white hairs. You're the gentler side of the executioner. Yeah, it's when I really like the uh, perspective on. He's kind of looming down on you. Yeah, he's coming out of a stone staircase. Bird's eye view of the plot. We're following Sue and her brother, Eddie. They go on a trip to London with their parents who are at an academic conference, or so they think. Is it an academic conference? Or just a oh, conference? I guess I just assumed. That's why people... <laughs> why else would you go anywhere? I just pictured What other their... conferences are there? I pictured their parents as academics. I don't know why. I guess because they were pretty absent and were just like, why don't you go amuse yourself? We're very important. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so their parents are somewhere at a meeting, and they send their kids off on a tour group to explore London. They end up stopping at the Terror Tower. It's basically the Tower of London. The kids are pretty freaked out by learning all the messed up stuff that happened there, and Sue in particular gets a weird sense of deja vu. It's laid on pretty blatantly that there's a Princess Susanna and a Prince Edward who were locked in the tower and disappeared forever, and then the kids start getting menaced and chased by this guy in a black cape who keeps trying to catch them and flip over three white stones and chant things, and it turns out it's because he is trying to transport them back in time because they are Princess Susanna and Prince Edward. Their uncle was trying to steal the throne from them, the rightful heirs, and so he had them imprisoned in the tower and was going to have them killed. But then this Merlin-like character, Morgred, who's the king's wizard or sorcerer, uh, shows up and is like, I'll tell you what happened. I'm not going to help you, but here's how you get back, but I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm not going to help you. Not unlike the Galloping Gazelle last time. Yeah. Adults not coming through for people could be the theme of this book as well. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, Eddie has a special skill, which is pickpocketing. Which is a pretty goddamn cool skill. I think so, too. I mean, he calls himself the Mad Pickpocketer, which is like... <laughs> like the Mad Pincher? Like the Mad Pincher from Horrorland, but this is an even better skill, I think, than pinching. Yeah. More of a skill than pinching. And it actually comes in handy for them. <laughs> oh, wait, no. It came in handy. It comes in equally handy. Eddie manages to take the stones... And they transport themselves back to the 20th century. Back to the future. Yes, they transport They transport themselves back to the future. And for some reason, they decide they take Morgrid, who just kind of screwed them over, with them to be their father. And then they all get burgers. The end. Yeah. That's a very weird ending. It is. And I just can't even start to, like, I was like, well, none of them have birth certificates. They don't have passports. Like, how are they going to get a job? You know, <laughs> who's going to enroll them in school? There's so many problems. Yeah. How are they even going to buy burgers? That's a, good, that's a good point, because the text makes a point of telling us that they don't have 20th century money. Yeah, only gold sov- sovereigns. Mm-hmm. Speaking of sovereigns, I feel like this book is very interested in the powers of the monarch versus the powers of the people and 
what are the costs of a population being obedient to a sovereign. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get into it. So we open with our protagonists, our narrator Sue and her 10-year-old brother Eddie. They're visiting Terror Tower in London, which is essentially the Tower of London. They say they got into London that day and they've already been to the British Museum, Harrods, and have eaten bangers and mash. And Trafalgar Square and rode a double-decker bus. This like, is a, yeah, this is a wild ride of a day. Too many things. They're also the only kids in their group. Everyone else is adults. They say their parents gave them some money and were like, have a nice day. We're at a meeting. And Mr. Starks, their tour guide, is explaining about the castle. He says, look, this this wall it used to be part of a Roman fort. It's hundreds of years old. 400 CE mm -hmm. is when it was built. And then later it was turned into a debtor's prison. So the children get the concept of a debtor's prison laid on them. Yeah. And uh, Earl Stein's pretty blatant about how messed up that is, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, yeah, you were in debt. So you're put in prison. So you could never pay your debt. So you just died there. We got some hard truths about humans uh, in this book. And Eddie and Sue, especially Eddie, are very not okay with it. So they're both upset by thinking about all the torture that was done to people in the tower, all the horrible things that were done to them. And we notice the tour guide constantly making jokes about it and a lot of the adults laughing about the jokes. But I think the kids are in a position where they're kind of first being exposed to the horrifying things people will do to each other. And so they're not at a point where they can deal with their uncomfortable feelings by laughing. They're still in shock. Although I was thinking about this medieval torture in this era and probably still was presented as this object of fascination. Mm -hmm. Did you have medieval times where you grew up? No, but uh, that's actually part of why I didn't like the medieval period was that it always played up kind of that thing. Yeah. So there, I was very fascinated by it. I think it was partly the food also. So in, there was one that was like, I don't know, like an hour from our house. But there was a sort of side part of it where you could go while you were milling around waiting for the show. That was the quote unquote torture chamber where they had all of these implements that I think are actually 19th century fakes of medieval implements. Like the Iron Maiden was never used, right? It was like, look how bad the Spaniards were. They did this in the Inquisition as opposed to like an actual thing, right? I mean, I don't really know. I feel like I've heard that from you before and I believed you. <laughs> Oh, because I thought I had heard that from you. And the Inquisition is not medieval. Uh, no. Like, it's so funny, this historical mishmash. I mean, the way that medieval period is depicted in this book, and as you're saying in things like Medieval Times, mm -hmm. it's like they had torture. They ate just tons of food with their hands, just shoveled it in. They were mm -hmm. all huge and beefy, and they were filthy. They never showered once. <laughs> they didn't own a brush. Like there's a, a, It comes up over and over again when they travel to the medieval period in this one. It's like these little girls just like had tangled hair and dirt all over them. It's like, okay, no, they were like... It's the Monty Python sketch where they're like, oh, we know he was a king because he hasn't got shit all over him. Right. People didn't just roll in dirt. Like. <laughs> well, OK. So the, my point about that was like that always horrified me because you'd walk through and like here for your entertainment are all these torture implements. Yeah. And I, I remember also having a book about witches and like witch trials. And they'd also be like, here are all the ways they tortured witches. It's like, this is horrifying. Yeah. That's what I didn't like. I had a book that was like a cross section of castles. Mm -hmm. and the I only, think I had that one too. The only thing I liked about it was there was like a cross section of the toilets and you'd see like a little poop falling. <laughs> yeah. So that was a DK book and they yeah. put out a computer game version of that, which I also had. It was super funny. And you could click on all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember that's where I learned the concept of a gong farmer. Uh, it was someone who dug up all the poo for the day and like took it out <laughs> in a cart to the edge of town. I didn't, forgot that's what it was called. It was also making me think about how that must have played much differently in the 90s because only a few years later we were having a national conversation about, you Guantanamo. know, quote, yeah, quote unquote enhanced interrogation. Well, that's what's so interesting, I think, in this opening is Eddie's like, but this doesn't happen anymore. People don't get just thrown in prison and the key thrown away. People don't get tortured. And anyway, yeah, we're, we're squarely in this um, sweet summer child. Well, that and like this narrative in the early to mid 90s of the end of history, which mm -hmm. is capitalism has triumphed over communism. We have truly reached the pinnacle of human progress and success. The end. Right. Yeah. I mean. And and nothing bad ever happened. Exactly. And clearly it's like middle class white characters, you know. Mm -hmm. We also get an interesting span of history. So this idea of history being ever present, uh, like a purpose built building, continuing to draw the same types of behaviors. The tower gets used as a fort, then it gets used as a prison, and then it got used as troop barracks. So it's just embedded with, so it's got all this kind of violence embedded in the walls, and it keeps coming up for Eddie and Susan when they're like, or Sue rather, when they're looking at it or climbing up the stairs or thinking about all the people whose traces are still 
present in like the smoothed out stairway or writing on the wall. Yeah, exactly. There's a guy walking around who's dressed up as a scary executioner and Mr. Starks just makes a joke about this is the Tower Barber. And the kids don't laugh. And then they also catch sight of a man in a cape with a wide brimmed hat pulled down over his face and they feel very ominous about him. Although I feel like today we'd just say, hey, he's LARPing. (laughs) And there's some good suspense building just as they're entering the castle where Sue takes a picture of Eddie at the entrance. And then she says, I had no way of knowing it was the last picture I would ever take of Eddie. Mm -hmm. I don't think that totally adds up unless she somehow died at the end. Her camera does break. So I think that might be the sort of out. But yes. She could get another. She could. Someday she'll have a smartphone. You know, if she ever comes across any modern money. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. And then later she goes to take a picture of something in the torture chamber and it's gone. And this is when we learn that Eddie is a pickpocket. You know, I was thinking like, this is probably better than most of my skills. Like, I don't (laughs) do anything that useful. I thought Eddie was kind of adorable. So he swipes Sue's camera at this point and then she's like, hey, where's my camera? Oh, you little punk. And so she gets back at him by totally violating tour rules, reaching across the barrier and picking up a pair of these ancient hands handcuffs that yeah. have spikes on them and she puts one on and she's like ah it's it's spiking me and eddie freaks out and goes totally pale and she's like haha just kidding like my hand's too small for it to hurt me but he's like i actually thought you were hurt yeah and she's like well now we're even <laughs> She's a little brisk with him. Yeah. But it seems like a lot of her a lot of her energy goes into keeping him from freaking out and trying to teach him not to freak out. She's like, you're 10 now. Stop being scared of things. It's the magic number. Right. They're led up this very narrow sta- staircase, and Sue is imagining what it must have been like for prisoners to have been led up there. And then Mr. Starks shows them where the political prisoners were held, and he says that most of them were beheaded. A lot of really uh, heavy concepts to be laying on children. Yeah, well, I also thought it was telling Earl Stein, being a writer and all, that the cell contains a writing table, you know, so <laughs> yeah. it's an image of the prisoner unjustly imprisoned, mm-hmm. sort of saying their piece. He gives that little backstory on Prince Edward and Princess Susanna, and it's a retelling of, you know, the story of the princes in the tower? Yes. So it's the story of Richard III, like the play, before he became Richard III, when he was just a duke. He was supposed to be the protector of the heir to the throne, Edward, and his brother, Richard. It's confusing because they all had the same names. Because they were 12 and 9 when their father, the king, died. And so instead of protecting them, Richard III said, I know how to take power. So he had them disappeared. He had them put in the tower in 1483, and then nobody ever knew what happened to them. But most people assumed they were murdered. And actually in 1674, a box with two small skeletons was found in the tower. So everyone thought, oh, that's probably them. Charles II had those skeletons interred in Westminster Abbey. But for a long time, actually, there was people like Perkin Warbeck, for example, who would say, I'm Richard escaped or I'm Edward escaped. And now I'm going to lead an uprising against the current monarchy because I'm the true heir. Like people who say, oh, I'm the Princess Anastasia. Yeah, exactly. And well, the thing that's interesting is we have a lot of cases in here where people are unwilling to help these children they should protect because they're like, well, the king might get me in trouble. The state might punish me. And one of the big challenges of the idea of a pretender to the throne is it's like, well, if someone can pass themselves off as the king, that's as good as being the king. Mm -hmm. And actually, shit, isn't the king just some guy passing himself off as the king? The right of the monarch is called into question. I felt like that was an interesting thing, thing underlying this story. Yeah, absolutely. So in this version, like I said, it's not subtle. It's Edward and Susanna, which is the name of Eddie and Sue. They learn that these past people with their same names were smothered by some adult in their cell. And they miss part of the story because Sue drops her camera and it breaks. And they're in this room and they just feel really sad. For a minute, Sue thinks that she sees some writing, like a message that the prince and princess had left, but it's just cracks in the stones. And they're so distracted by this that they lose the tour group which is much more mundane than some of the things that we're going to be getting. But getting separated from your tour group in a foreign country where your parents aren't there, like, that's that's scary. I would have been freaked out as a kid. And especially, like, in Curse of the Mummy's Tomb and Return of the Mummy, it's this winding tower with false staircases and hidden rooms and things like that where it's super easy to get lost. They go climbing down the stairs, but then these stairs branch off in two directions, and they're not sure which way to go. And this is where Sue is, like, trying to keep her brother from panicking by teasing him. But then they hear these heavy footsteps coming up the stairs, and it's that guy in the cape. The LARPer. Yes, the LARPer. He is like, I don't want to hurt you, but you need to come with me, and you know why. Which ultimately is a bit of a misdirect, because he definitely wants to hurt them. Maybe he doesn't want to. He Mm. just plans to. Just his job. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that is a lot of this, right? Just, I have to do what I'm told, Mm -hmm. regardless of what I think is right or wrong. Yeah. And that's a good enough excuse. 
they're trying to figure out who he is and he just keeps saying, you know, I am here. And it's actually a really scary stranger danger moment because there there's no one around and it seems like he's going to abduct them, which he is planning to do. And that's when he pulls out these three smooth white stones and is mumbling and piling them up, doing some kind of spell. So they take their chance to run away down the staircase that he's not blocking. Yeah, they're really good at not hesitating and running. It's kind of like 10 Cloverfield Lane, where you have these, like, equivalent of the final girl who is following all, like, doing all the things you would be yelling at them to do, but they're still facing a force that's bigger and stronger than them. They run down these stairs and they, like, push through a door and they bolt it from behind, but then they hear a cruel voice laughing from within the room. There's uh, someone telling them, you've entered the king's dungeon, abandon all hope. So I got a little bit of a Dante's Inferno type of reference. They're entering hell, perhaps. I was wondering if they're in a state of limbo right now. Yeah, I, I could see that. Because it's similar, like, people being trapped and tormented. This scene also, you know, they're running by cells that have bony hands sticking out, and it turns out it's props for the terror's tours. And it's just a recording that's saying Abandon Hope. And... Yeah, but it was reminding me of One Day at Horrorland, like a very amped up version where we're running by all these scary things. We're letting you know that they're there, and those will work on your imagination, and you're getting, you know, suggestions of all of the true horrors there. But we're not going to stop and look at all of them. They trip over a what they think is someone chained to the floor, but it's really a dummy, not a person in torment, but it's a reference to something that actually did happen, right? And something that could happen again. And then the man in the cape bursts in and he says, you know, you have no choice. Come with me. And then they take off running again. And he luckily trips over that dummy. There's a, a nice literary moment I noted where Sue says, beyond the beam of light of her flashlight, the darkness rose up like a fog. <laughs> like, I can't really picture that. It seems like some weird goose first physics again. But <laughs> I liked it. They make it into an old sewer tunnel. The man manages to catch up to them, and then there's a truly horrific moment where an entire wall of rats comes bursting out and, like, chasing the man, and his hat falls off, and they rip it to pieces, and they're grabbing at his cape, and they have all these little red eyes and snaky tails, and the kid's are like, phew. <laughs> Did you ever watch The Bone Collector? Yes. So I remember very vividly that movie because it was the first time I realized a bunch of rats could eat you to pieces. It also happens in the original story, The Pit and the Pendulum. One of the assumptions is that, like, perhaps the rats will eat the guy, mm. eat the narrator, but then he figures out a way to make the rats work for him by eating off his straps. I wouldn't be surprised if R.L. Stein was thinking about this. Oh, totally. They find a metal ladder at the end of the tunnel. They get out. They're in the parking lot and their tour bus is gone. And a tall white haired man comes limping towards them. And it turns out he's the night guard. He says, oh, your bus left without you. They were looking for you, but they had to go. He doesn't believe them when they say someone was chasing them. He's a little bit more worried about liability. Yeah. Nobody cares about helping these kids. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's why the reference to the story of the two princes in the tower is like very nice comparison here. The tour guide looked for them, couldn't find them and just left. Nobody mm -hmm. called the police. The guy who's the night watchman is like, oh, well, shame on you, kids. Get We're in close. a taxi cab. And then he puts them in a taxi cab and the taxi driver is just like angry at them that they can't find the right money to pay him. They only have these gold sovereigns. And he's like, well, hurry up and get your parents. There's just nobody who has any sympathy for them. Yeah. Except when they go into the hotel, they get to the room and it's closed. No one's answering and a maid lets them in. Mm -hmm. But then they get into the room and there's no sign of their parents, no clothes in the closet, uh, nothing. Exactly. Yeah. They think they've been abandoned and they start to think that they maybe are going crazy. Mm -hmm. So they go down to the lobby and there's a there's a real Karen, yeah. uh, a woman in a green pantsuit screaming about how she was promised a river view. And the hotel manager's like, we're not by a river. <laughs> and she's like, read what I have right here. And yeah. they're like, oh, this is stressful. When the kids, though, finally get a chance to talk to the hotel uh, attendant, the person at the desk, they realize they don't know what their parents' meeting is about, which is pretty reasonable. But then they know what room they're supposed to be in, but they can't. The, the clerk's like, well, there's no actual meetings at this hotel, so I don't know what you're talking about. Well, what's your last name? I'll look up the registry and they can't remember their own last name. This is terrifying. They suddenly realize they don't remember what their name is. They don't remember what their parents look like. They don't remember what they were doing the day before yeah. today. Yeah, it's really scary. And I can imagine this. When I get in a panic, I also completely go blank sometimes and can't remember anything. Sue thinks, well, maybe that's what's happening to them. So they're like, we just need to eat something. So we'll go into the restaurant, we'll order some food, and then maybe we'll be able to kind of collect ourselves. So they go, they get high tea, so they have some sandwiches and scones. Yeah, tuna salad, egg salad, and some unidentifiable little other things. <laughs> and they have croissants and strawberry jam. It's a very good food watch moment. One of several good food watch moments in this. Mm -hmm. 
But I felt like this scene reminded me so much of the party in The Shining because yeah. it, it felt like things were just too nice a little bit. Like everyone's acting too happy. There's, oh, your money's no good here, sir. Yeah, exactly. There's three children at the next table over who are all dressed up singing a song in French to their pleased parents. And it's like, <laughs> this seems like somebody's idea of a nice restaurant rather than what's, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, it's too good to be true. Yeah. Over the top. Mm-hmm. And then the taxi driver comes in looking for them. So like, instead of eating his 15 pounds, he just is going to stop, not make any more money, and instead look around for these children. Yeah, shake down. So they slip away through a back door. Uh, marked no exit. Yeah. Speaking of which, it's another reference to a hell-related mm-hmm. story, or a limbo-related story, actually. Yeah. When they get into the hallway, it's unpainted and dirty, and they think, oh, this must just be a service hall or something. Maybe that's why it looks like this. Well, and regarding Arl Stein's sort of architecture watch, you know, all these buildings <laughs> always are very symbolically loaded. And I feel like in this case, the contrast between the opulence of the customer facing part of the hotel and then the dinginess of the part that's for the workers, it's like, we don't need to show you nice time, is very stark. Yeah. And then the man in the black cape shows up and he is furious with Eddie. He demands, give it back, give it back. And Sue is like, what are you talking about? And Eddie says, very deadpan, if I give him back, will you let us go? Turns out Eddie pickpocketed the man. Sue was like, why did you do that? And Eddie's like, seemed like it was important to him. That in it was the right call, but probably giving the stones back to the man was not the right call, which is what Eddie then does. Thinking, yeah, he's too trusting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he thinks you can reason with people with power. And he's wrong. Yeah. So everything starts shimmering and bending as this guy is speaking to the stones in a foreign language. It gets really bright, and then Sue feels like she's been punched in the stomach, and it all goes dark. They wake up, and I think this is, like, one of the scariest parts. So they think they're in this part of the hotel that must have been made to look old-fashioned. It's all stone, and there's flickering candlelight, and there's people walking around all wearing hoods, and you can't see their faces, and they're all completely silent, just passing to and fro. And only one of them will acknowledge them. He says, I smell evil around you. Your time is near. And so very, very near. Yeah. He's like, do not leave the Abbey. It's like, I guess they must be in some kind of sanctuary space. But they want to get back to normal. So they do leave and they push through this tunnel, through this door. As they're doing that, Sue is reflecting on how scary it is to lose your memory, mm-hmm. which is true. Yeah. She's like, you can't actually run from it yeah. because it's something wrong inside of you, mm-hmm. which I think is cool. Yeah. I mean, bad and also well said. If I can be a little bit pedantic. I was waiting for this. What were you going to say? What do you think? I was waiting for you to talk about this banquet scene because I know that you research food history and specifically in England. And so I was interested to hear what you'd have to say because they come across a banquet scene where there's a whole deer on a spit and then vegetables strewn all over the table, not on plates, people eating with their hands. And they're just a couple chickens like walking around and a dog chasing after them. I mean, that part is believable. Yeah. So the table has meats, whole cabbages, green vegetables, fruits, and... Whole potatoes. Yeah, that, that's not, not correct. Where do potatoes come from? From the New World. Yeah, they, it took a long time before people in Britain caught on to potatoes. It was like late 17th century before they were like, those are edible, I guess. And then they were just like, I can't get a fucking enough of this, <laughs> which same. Also, there's a man in a bear pelt. Yeah, every, it's just so absurd. Everyone in this is just wearing rags. Like, <laughs> Except for this guy who's like the guy in The Shining giving someone a blowjob. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Blowjob oh my bear. Gosh. Yeah. And this woman is like b- holding two babies, but chewing on a hunk of meat and ignoring her babies. And it's just, there's this sense of like, oh, can you believe how uncivilized the past was? It's also like no table manners at all. And also torture. Yeah. We've come so far. <laughs> right. They try to get someone's attention to talk to them. And a man starts screaming, it's them. It's them. Yeah. Just like that. I know. Well, people are terrible. It turns out you think people will help you out, but they won't. Like, that could reference one time when we were being chased by a scary man down a streets in an unfamiliar city, and we, like, tried to get a bunch of people to help us, and everyone just, like, looked away. Like, we'd go up to someone's shop and be like, this guy's chasing us, and they'd be like, I really don't want to be part of this. I'm drinking tea. Yeah, exactly. Including the police. Yes, that was the police who were like, ah, we're drinking tea, just relax. Especially the police. Yeah. All right, so they push out onto the street, and it's the middle of the day, and it's the past. And Sue tries to ask a boy, where's the hotel, the Barclay Hotel? And he says, I don't know about those foreign words. Being in England as a foreigner, I was going to say, was a dangerous thing to be in the 15th century, but I mean... Continues, yeah. It's not the most comfortable place. (laughs) 
And then Sue looks around and realizes Eddie is gone. Yeah. And it's kind of like a Western all of a sudden. So everyone suddenly disappears into their cottages and the caped man comes up and he's like, you know me, you cannot delay your fate. And so Sue takes off running and she finds this red haired woman carrying a baby. Just because someone's a woman and has a baby does not mean they're a good person, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and as a side note, she gets away because an ox cart goes by and the sort of rumbling blows his hat off his head. And I noticed that, too, in the uh, sewer scene where he got really thrown when he lost his hat and the rats got it. Well, she makes a big point of saying he's bald as an egg, so maybe he's a little sensitive about it. (laughs) It seems that way. So she's like, lady, help me. And the lady's like, I can't. And she's like, what if I gave you a bunch of money? And the lady's like, ah, gold sovereigns. Right this way, miss. Get inside this kindling box. And uh, Sue's like, okay. I think probably as a, as a kid and also now, I just pictured a big wicker hamper. Ooh. That happens in um, Merry Wives of Windsor. Someone gets fooled into hiding in a hamper and then they throw really dirty laundry on top of him. <laughs> and he's like disgusted. Sucker. But th- they did laundry, folks. <laughs> Doesn't mean that their dirty clothes were like smelled nice, though. No, no. They smelled really bad. That's kind of the point of the scene. <laughs> but also, like, they did do laundry to wear clean clothes later. Anyway... The woman double crosses her and the cape man shows up and she's like, I basically packed her up for you. And she's like, sorry, I dare not go against the Lord High Executioner. So everyone is basically cowed into going along with this authoritarian government. Can you imagine? Can't. Yes. Totally foreign concept. It is. Um. Um, So Sue is taken away, still in the basket. When she finally is released from the kindling box, she's back at Terror Tower, and she's now sort of fully realized that they've gone back in time. Now it is an active prison. There are prisoners there, and she is locked in the same cell where the prince and princess were locked. And it's a really intense scene where she's surveying the courtyard of prisoners because it's all these people staring up at the sky or vacantly rocking back and forth mm-hmm. and just completely hopeless. There's like babies there crying and it's I, th- I think it's supposed to be the debtors, you know. Yeah. Whereas she's a political prisoner, so she gets her own room. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, she shares it, shares it with her brother. Then our friend, the Merlin-esque Morgred, turns up. He's a white-haired man in purple robes, which is how you know he's a wizard. And he's got a pointy beard. Yeah. Trimming your beard in an interesting way is a sign you're either a devil or a wizard, I think. (laughs) He calls them Edward and Susanna. He says they are really the prince and princesses of York, ordered by their uncle, the king, into the tower. And he had cast a spell on them to help them escape the tower. And he erased their memories and gave them new ones. But they were only partial, which is why they didn't remember their parents' last names. Not unlike the Wizard of Oz, he's a fairly bad wizard (laughs) uh, in that he gave them some memories but didn't really do the job all the way. Yeah. And just like everyone else in the story, they're like, well, you can help us now. We have the stones. Like, we could go back to the future. And he's like... Well, then I wouldn't be able to help all the other people in England. If I if I helped you, then I would get in trouble. And, like, I, there's so many other people I could help. And it's like, you know that's not your motive. Yeah. It's like this justification thing. Like, oh, I can change things from the inside. He says, oh, if I just stack the stones this way and say these words, I could send you forward into the future. But I won't. Goodbye. I'm glad you enjoyed your time in the 20th century. The words are movarum, lovaris, movaris. So it's kind of a Latin-y. And another kind of conjugation-y magic spell. <laughs> and then he also gives the kids their memories back, and so they they know that he's saying the truth. Mm-hmm. They make a run for it, but Morgrid casts a spell that freezes them in place until he leaves, and then they hear the executioner approaching. Luckily, Eddie had pickpocketed the stones back, and he says the spell, and they're back in the 20th century. He says, fastest hands in Britannia. Yeah. <laughs> and then they think the executioner is coming in, but it's a modern tour guide leading a tour. Yeah, and it's a fashion watch. Like, yes. Great fashions here. She's wearing layers of red and yellow t-shirts, which my question was, how, how many? many? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Seven. <laughs> and a short skirt over black tights, which mm-hmm. that sounds like a great look. I would love, I would wear that look. Yeah. One of the people on the tour is Morgrid. Who now goes by Mr. Morgan. Yeah. Which I thought might be a reference to Arthur's sister. Morgana Le Fay. Yeah. Yeah. And then he... Another, like, ethically compromised medieval uh-huh. character. Yeah. And then he says, thanks for bringing me back with you. Yeah. They're like, well, we needed a parent. Yeah. It's, it's like, like, wait, did you mean you? to bring him back? Yeah. Also, he doesn't seem super broken up about helping, quote, all of the people in Britain. No, he definitely just wanted to protect himself. Mm-hmm. There's no talk of him helping the 20th century people of Britain either. <laughs> they don't need it. Everything's fine now. It's the end of history. Yeah. So it's supposed to be all fine, although I would say we don't know exactly what year they ended up in because Eddie didn't say a year aloud. Mm -hmm. Sue just tries to actively repress everything by saying, how about we all go to Burger Burger Palace? I almost said Burger Palace. (laughs) (laughs) We're leaving that in. 
Okay. Yeah, and Mr. Mr. Morgan is like, oh, I could do a food spell. And they say, no, we've had enough spells. Let's go get some hamburgers and fries from Burger Palace. We need to buy things, man. Yeah. Got an itch to buy. So, yeah. Maybe do a money spell, though. That sounds like, I mean, and I guess a birth certificate spell, like I said. Like yeah. a, a passport very spell. concerned about their documentation. Yeah. Like, it's just, their life's not going to be easier if they can't, if they don't have papers. I wonder why they thought they were American. I guess. Because they're not. Just to throw them off. Like, maybe, yeah. Maybe he was trying to get them to leave London eventually mm. so that the executioner couldn't find them. Because probably... it didn't give them any last names or passports. Yeah, I mean, that would have been helpful. Or I parents. guess he probably just didn't think of it, right? Yeah, maybe he... wouldn't he... have needed that documentation. I mean, medieval bureaucracy was extensive. It, it just had a very different form then mm-hmm. than ours now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, probably the Lord High Executioner wouldn't have heard of the Americas, so... Except, I guess, in this alternate universe, they have a potato conveyor across the Atlantic. <laughs> Somehow. Oh my god. All right, so it's a weird Just thing... imagine a giant conveyor belt full of potatoes yeah i'd just stand at the end of it and be very excited <laughs> actually probably i just like imagining like flying fish jumping up over it, like <laughs> snatching potatoes it's weird <laughs> i'm weird so it's a weirdly quick plot to re-narrate even yeah. though i felt like it was really intense to read yeah it felt like a lot happened but also yeah you're right it feels a lot easier to sum up than some of the ones we've read more recently i think the reason it felt intense was on an emotional level. I guess we should get into taxonomies of horror, but there was a lot to be horrified by in this. I can start us off. We touch on this. It's not fully explored, but the idea of a time loop Mm. or a paradox, when the new tour guide comes in, she is talking about the prince and princess and says they were supposed to be killed, but they disappeared and no one ever saw them again. And it's one of the great mysteries of history. And so the suggestion is that they changed the past by Mm -hmm. going forward in time. Not the real course of history. The king still got to be the king and everything else that led to the 20th century happened. But time travel stories always sort of mess me up because, because of the causality involved. And it seems like it's the thing causes itself ultimately. But it reminded me of movies like Triangle or Time Crimes, where someone sets something in motion and then in order to correct it, they end up having to go back in time again. So this doesn't quite get into that territory, but it's really sort of nodding to genres like that, I think, in an oblique way. Like the Treehouse of Horror with the toaster, that where Homer gets his hand stuck in the time-traveling toaster? Yeah. Yeah, I also thought about time loops, and I was thinking about Terminator, actually. Oh! Because the Lord High Executioner is trying to track these children through time to end them in order to change. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Change how things fall out. But yeah, I had a hard time because I guess we don't have enough information wrapping my head around his motive because if the children disappeared or if the children died, doesn't that mean the same thing for the king that he's working for? Or does the Lord High Executioner have his own separate agenda that has nothing to do with who's king but has something else to do with Susanna and Edward? Has a lot of integrity about his job and it would really bother him. He'd keep him up at night if he knew that those children were still alive, even if they were not threats to the king. Yeah. It also, now that you're bringing up this like time-bending thing and the questions it raises, it makes me wonder, I think as far as we can tell, it was yesterday that they were in the Tower of London, and then today they're in the 20th century. Like, they haven't had days before today. Um, in the 20th in century. In the 20th, 20th century. Yeah. The Lord High Executioner found them very quickly. Right, exactly. Yeah, Morgan is not a good wizard. They could time travel, but not space travel. <laughs> Which is also sort of a problem in time travel because the Earth rotates. So, like, you you would have to space travel also. Yeah, exactly. That was, I think it was a Bruce Cobble story. Did I bring it up on the pod before? I don't think so. The Bruce, I think it was a Bruce Cobble story. The story that most scared me that I read as a child was about these two teens who come up with a time machine. And the one is, like, scared to use it. But then this girl who's kind of, like, she's super punk and she's daring and kind of has this uh, almost a death wish. She's, like... I'm just going to try it. But then they didn't account for the fact that the Earth moves in space. So she goes back in time, but it's to the same space that she started in. So she's in the middle of just empty space. And then she, like, explodes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it scared the hell out of me. And it made me be like, okay, well, I better not time travel unless I know (laughs) someone's worked out this detail. But speaking of travel, I was thinking a lot about travel anxiety stories, the sense of losing yourself when you're in a foreign place. Mm -hmm. You can think of Rebecca. She's traveling to this foreign place and then she gets swept up in this story she never really meant to get swept up in because she's kind of estranged from everyone around her and doesn't know all the details. And that enables this guy to take advantage of her. Mm -hmm. There's also Don't Look Now. 
that yes. great movie where, where Donald Sutherland is being menaced all over Italy, and he's trying to escape from himself in a way, so he goes to this, because he's, his child died and he's haunted by it, thinks it was his fault, but he tries to go to a new location, but then he's even more disoriented, and he doesn't know how to interpret the things that he's seeing around him, and doesn't feel like he can trust anyone. In part because of a sort of non-linear time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, losing your familiar space can also make you disoriented in all these other ways, temporally, and things like that. So I felt like the story was a little bit related to those type of stories. I mean, The Shining would be another example. You're in this different space and that lets these other sides of you come out that you've otherwise been able to keep contained or lets new influences push you to do things you might not have previously done. Yeah. It also felt like related to the either you're not who you think you are or I wake up and I don't know who I am, which those are both, I think, sort of common horror tropes and ultimately leading to this horror at the thing I thought I was most familiar with myself is not what I think it is. We see this in so many ways. I kept thinking about the movie The Others, in part because, you know, they, it's about how, thinking you have a very stable sense of self and place and then realizing, oh, no, I'm not and I'm the stranger here. Similar yeah. to what you were just saying, actually. Stranger in a Strange Land. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're related, right? Because I think being in a new context does make you have to develop a different idea. Of, it expands who you are, right? Because you're seeing how you respond to things you haven't responded to before. So a memory loss genre and a travel genre, they kind of seem like cousins. But it was also thinking about memory loss stories. And I think Sue does just such a nice job of talking about... Uh, she says, I, I wrote down the quote, Losing your memory is much more frightening than being chased by someone because the problem is inside you, inside your own mind. You can't run away from it, you can't hide from it, and you can't solve it. I would say, yes, my therapist would agree. You need someone else's help to solve problems <laughs> that are inside your mind. I mean, I mean, that's also her business model, right? Yes, she has, she has a specific reason for wanting <laughs> to perpetuate that view. I mean, I, I love therapy, don't get me wrong. It's yeah. Just, yeah, no, I know. Um, I thought that too as I was saying it, but we've talked a lot about Black Mirror and these characters who are AI that think they're having a specific set of memories, but it's all programmed. Mm -hmm. I was also thinking about a lot of Joss Whedon stories have uh, have this come up. The character Don, who shows up in season five as Buffy's little sister, she's played by Michelle Trachtenberg. She thinks she's this 13-year-old girl who has lived with Buffy her whole life, and she learns that she's actually created by a bunch of sorcerers, and she's not actually a human originally and she's just been given all these false memories but she experiences herself as a human and she has this kind of crisis over it and like in the series dollhouse dollhouse is all about these people being created through programming but still experiencing themselves as real and then it raises question about what's real what's not real anyway for sue and eddie it's like okay well i feel this way about my parents i feel this way about who i am i want to get back to what i understand to be my reality even if it's not my origin it's actually cruel that he didn't send them with the knowledge of who they were because then they're just these lost confused children who are totally helpless and have no protectors as opposed to people who would go in sort of fully cognizant of the situation yeah they would have known what to, how to interpret what they were seeing the mm -hmm. masked or the the hatted man i don't know maybe that's like something to do with the experience of as a child not being given all the information you need to have about yourself or how you got to be where you are or the sense of being given some limited autonomy but some of the limitations on those on that autonomy will somehow make you feel even more lost and like you need an authority figure i was just listening to arl stein talking on a recording of him and he's talked about seeing a kid at LAX being, you know, put on a plane for the first time and his family all hugging him and, you know, sending him off. And obviously this was pre 9-11 so that the family could all be there even though they weren't flying with him. And that's one of those situations that's scary, right? Probably nothing's going to happen, but being treated as a child in that instance, I don't know, you, you're made to feel very helpless because... I don't know if you, you ever flew alone as a child, but I mean, I don't really think I did, but flight attendants are always told like, oh, there's a child, like you have to keep an eye on them and all that. And you're sort of singled out in this way that doesn't make you feel autonomous and in charge. Well, to link it back to the memory loss genre, I guess this is a book that's interested in history and how you learn things from the past that's kind of shared knowledge and when you encounter that and how you respond to it and what not having some of it does to you. Maybe as a child, there's things that are collective knowledge that you haven't been introduced to yet, so you don't know necessarily how to 
pay attention to the signals that the tour group's about to leave or how to find how to tell what British money is supposed to look like or something like that, you know? Oh, yeah. I once I was in a hotel with my family and I just wasn't paying attention and they got off the elevator and I was still on it and just went to another floor and I flipped the fuck out. I was a little child, but like I was like, oh, my God, I was screaming and crying. It was like I literally just went to another floor of the same building. But I'm sure we're not paying attention to what floor you were supposed to be on. Exactly. I was like, I'm a child. Like I go with them. And then, of course, it feeds into this narrative that you're helpless on your own. It's like, well, I didn't know I was supposed to be paying attention for that. And also memories tied to history, of course. So I think there's a little bit of kind of what we got in Return of the Mummy as well, where Gabe is suddenly realizing that the mummy that he's looking at is a boy just like him. Mm -hmm. And like bad things can happen to boys just like him. And everyone else already knew this, but he's kind of realizing it for the first time. The older people in his life already knew this. And similarly, Eddie in particular is just encountering for the first time just how bad people can be, both when he learns about it through visiting this tourist stop and hearing these stories, but also when he actually is trying to ask for help from people around him and learns that being an innocent child doesn't save you. And the really frustrating part of what Morgrid does is they would have already known that because they would have been in that situation, but they have to go then re-experience it in a different century. Yeah. A related uh, taxonomy thing I was thinking about is the abandonment or lost family member story. There's that one, is it a Twilight Zone episode where the girl goes to, she's like in a hotel with her aunt and then she goes to pick up some medicine. It's an Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and it's it's ah. a version of The Lady Vanishes. Right. And then she, she comes back, and the hotel room is completely empty, and it's like the aunt never existed. Mm-hmm. It turns out that they had mo- they moved her or something. She had died. She had some sort of plague or sickness, and she died, and the hotel moved her and pretended she had never been there so as not to disrupt. I don't know if it was like the Olympics or the World's Fair or something, mm-hmm. when people would know that there was, or people would not come because there was an outbreak of whatever it was. And there's a Jodie Foster movie too, I think Flight Plan is what it's called, where she falls asleep next to her daughter on the plane and she wakes up and her daughter's gone and everyone's like, you don't have a daughter. There was no little girl sitting next to you. It's like you're not knowing whether you're crazy or whether everyone's, everyone's lying to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a- another uh, example I was thinking of with a lost family story was, uh, did you ever see... Okay, well, first of all, there's Home Alone. Of course. Sometimes this reminds me of, especially Home Alone 2, <laughs> running around a hotel being like, well, I guess I'll get myself high tea. And <laughs> charge, charge it. it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, did you ever see the movie Deep End of the Ocean? No. It was Michelle Pfeiffer, and it was her son gets stolen from her, and then years later ends up moving down the street from her family, and she's like, I think that's my son. And it turns out it is. It's like with an adopted family. But the son's like, well, I don't know you. I don't think I'm your child and we can't make this work. Mm-hmm. It was like an Oprah's book club selection. And I remember was... reading about the book. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like this is a similar type of story, but from the child's perspective of getting completely separated from your family. And and then you just have a stranger walk up and like, I guess you're my parent now. Yeah. And now I guess I'm starting this new life with Mr. Morgan and we're going to act like it's fine. Yeah. Even though he's clearly failed to protect me in the past, but I literally have no one else in this entire world and time period. Yeah, it's almost like a Stockholm Syndrome story. Mm-hmm. That's what I have for genres. Um, did you have any shared universe or did you have other genre stuff? No other genre stuff. For shared universe, I mean, we now know that time travel works in this world. I'm also just wondering about the king has a wizard. Presumably other forms of government have wizards, right? And we've had some suspicion of government before, right? Mm-hmm. With oh, we can't let the government get this mirror because we don't know what's going to happen. That seems to open up some interesting alternate history possibilities or other just world possibilities. Yeah, the idea that the government has magicians or wizards working for it is, I mean, if you unpack the metaphor, it's like you have people whose job it is to make reality what the authority figure wants it to be as opposed to what it actually is. Someone who would say, I need you to find 11,000 votes for me. Right. To force reality to be what it is in his head. Mm -hmm. I really think R.L. Stein is pretty anti-authoritarian, ultimately. Yeah, I assume he... Let me look up the year he was born, but I assume he came up sort of during the 60s, right? And since he likes, you know, underground comics type of... Yeah. I mean, it seems to... 40s, yeah. He was born in the 40s? 1943. Okay, 77. Yeah. Huh? He's 77. Wow. Doesn't look a day over 50. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I wonder how many books he's written at this point. I don't know. Like 500? Probably. Yeah, just in this book in particular, I mean, we've gotten a few in a row that seem to be about exploring authority and the rights of the state, like Emil living kind of off the grid. Right, um, yeah. And so in this one, I feel like we have two heirs to the throne who are not even interested in claiming their title. They want to go on existing. Well, they've been made to forget it. That's the other piece of this. Like, Morgan really does 
more harm than good. But I mean, even once they learn who they are, they're not like, okay, I must reclaim my birthright. Right. They're just like, I want to survive. What were you you saying about Morgan? Oh, I just, it seems like, you know, he, he seems so sad about the king and queen were the rightful heirs, but your uncle is taking it. It's like, well, you really could intervene in this situation, but you seem to have a vested interest in these children being helpless, Mm -hmm. which I mean, is also how it would have worked if you had like a regent, right? Who would make all the decisions until the monarch was of age. And presumably they're also shaping that young monarch according to their own desires. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And we see in this one pretty starkly how effectively a violent authoritarian can wield power over masses of people who are all, even though the king is not really on their side or else they wouldn't be living in total fear, they are all willing to go along with what he says and, you know, hand over the two kids and refuse to help them, but take their money, Mm -hmm. right? Because that's, I don't know, that's that's what fear does, I guess. Yeah. There's, like, no solidarity in this Linus book world. I mean, there is. It's just not on behalf of our protagonists. There's plenty of solidarity with the king. Yeah. Just with power. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's giving us a view of, like, what that looks like from the other side. Yeah, and how unwilling people are to stand up to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like Arlstein's never, I feel like, very explicitly political, but that's the message you're getting is to be disappointed in people who will make that call of being safe. Yeah. And a lot of them are about what it's like to be isolated from sources of community or power. Mm-hmm. So one shared universe thing I had was the camera. Uh-huh. So oh, you're right. I was wondering. Wow, it's been a minute. Is there a reason that her camera had to break in order for Hat Guy to be able to do his magic? Well, maybe if she took a picture of him, it would have shown him dying and he would have died. Yeah, I just wonder what the powers of cameras, because we know they can transport people across in and out of existence like it happened to Sherry, or can maybe cause harm, so it's possible the guy was waiting for the camera to no longer be in the picture. Mm, interesting. And I'm just thinking too about, because that was a technology, right, as opposed to the outright magic that Morgrid has, and it makes me wonder, is science in this universe just like a gussied up form of magic? Well, yeah, because compare that to his stones, right? So Mm -hmm. the three stones plus the words taken together, I mean, is that a kind of technology? It seems like it would be looked at from a different angle. I mean, like in the sense of it's a thing that makes something happen. It's an object plus knowledge that has allows you to affect your will on the world. Mm Mm-hmm. But again, we have also words being dangerous, you know, like in Return of the Mummy or... Night of the Living Dummy. Scarecrow Walks at Midnight. That's an important part of affecting your will. So I was noting that. Another theory point I wanted to raise, uh, I guess the only theory point I wanted to raise, was what do you make of the fact that at the end of this all, food is the answer? Because we've got... (laughs) Eat your feelings. Yeah. We've gotten so much attention to food in these books, so much attention to being skinny or whatever. And at the end of this, the way of solving everything is to eat a hamburger. (laughs) Again, I don't know if it's the way to solve things. It might be the way to repress things. Mm. You know, throughout most of the book, I was pretty convinced that it was going to be a ghost situation where this was the site of our trauma. We're haunting this tower because this is where the terrible thing happened to us. Mm. We kind of get this out where it's actually time traveling and it turns out they changed their fate. Well, I could see this as being connected to a kind of Persephone in the underworld, right? Mm. If you eat, you're stuck there or somehow partaking of the material there uh, binds you to that place. Yeah. Well, that's something I was wondering is, is this the actual 20th century that they travel to or are they in some kind of limbo or hell because of the Dante reference, because of the no exit, which I realize it's not really a reference, but I'm just just having fun here Um, (laughs) because of how surreal the hotel Mm -hmm. seems like in The Shining. And then the the point you just raised about Persephone and being like tied to the space. I wonder if they're actually in some form of the afterlife. Like, did the rats eat them? Yeah, the afterlife or an alternate reality, right? Some other dimension in some other some part of the multiverse, right? Mm hmm. I, I also was wondering about the sort of limbo situation. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts either way? Like, are you sort of coming down one way or the other? Or is it more just a suggestion? It was kind of a suggestion, especially I was thinking of it because, like, according to Catholicism, at least, limbo is where unbaptized babies go. So someone who is innocent but not saved, mm-hmm. right? Which could be a way of thinking about these two children or indeed the two children that their story references, the two real children in the 15th century, they are innocent of any wrongdoing, but they're still not saved in a very literal sense, not in the spiritual sense. I mean, I could see this as a limbo story, but it's not like Hannah, where Hannah comes back to in a 
goes next door where Hannah comes back to fix something and then gets to go into a final rest. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what final rest would look like for these kids. Yeah. They're still in this position of being travelers with no home, you know? Do you think they're going to the Burger Palace because that's where they'll finally reign supreme? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, they'll get the little, like, Burger King crown. Yeah. I don't know. It just, yeah, I think that's related to the travel thing, too, right? You're, like, in between and they have no clear path forward. At one point, they were in line to the throne, right? And now it's like, well, what are you supposed to do? Just go to school? Yeah. After all that? Nothing you're going to grow up to be is going to live up to that, huh? I mean, can you imagine a future for them? They have a lot of magic at their disposal, so Mm. I think they'll figure something out. I don't think they're going to help all of the people of Britain, personally. It's just a hunch. Maybe they'll prevent Brexit. (laughs) Or maybe Morgrid caused it. Oh, God. So many questions raised. I just don't think they can really trust Morgrid, even. I think they need to get away from him as soon as possible. Oh, absolutely. Like, I also don't buy this, thanks for bringing me along. It's like, uh uh-uh, you did something. Mm -hmm. I think they're still in danger. Well, what a note to end on. All right, then. Very appropriate to Goosebumps, though. We've had a lot of books where it ends with the kids still in danger. Mm Mm-hmm. But trying to put a happy face on it. How would you rate this? I think a four and a half, because there's some genuinely scary parts here. And it's a cool story. Uh, I didn't totally see where it was going. How about you? Yeah, I think a four for me. And similar reasons. I think the only reason not higher is because it's just not my genre. Like, I don't, like I said, I don't love medieval stuff. I don't love fantasy. It's not fantasy, really. But I don't love, like... Wizards. Yeah, yeah, medieval times. Yeah, same. I mean... But I thought it was really s- smart and it got dark in a way that I appreciated. Same. What are we reading next week? Next week is, speaking of time travel, one that was seared on every kid's memory who read it and oh, yeah. filled us with existential dread, The Cuckoo Clock of Doom. Oh my god, I can't wait to revisit this one. Which, folks, if you haven't listened to our mini-sode, uh, our most recent mini-sode with Zach of Middle Fantasy... We talk a a bit in that about Cuckoo Clock of Doom. I'm really looking forward to revisiting it. Me too. Right. Well, we want to know what you think. Did you like Night in Terror Tower? Do you think the kids are in hell? (laughs) Do you think they'll... What do you think they're going to do with their lives after this? Yeah. Where do you go from here? (laughs) You can write to us at saypodanddie at gmail.com. And you can also get in touch with us on Instagram and Twitter at saypodanddie. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Leave us five bewares on Apple Podcasts. Helps us reach more goose punks and tell them about limbo and children in in it. Yes, and burgers. Yeah. Listener beware. Those Those were the the scares. Good boo. Good boo. The dark castle rose in front of me. Terror Tower. He had brought me back to the Terror Tower. This is where Eddie and I had seen him for the first time. This is where the executioner had first chased us. In the 20th century, in the time where I belonged, hundreds of years in the future. Somehow, Eddie and I had been dragged back into the past, to a time where we didn't belong. And now Eddie was lost, and I was being led to the Terror Tower. The courtyard was jammed with silent, grim-looking people. Dressed in rags and tattered, stained gowns, they stared at me as I was dragged past. Some of them stood hunched like scarecrows, their eyes vacant, their faces blank, as if their minds were somewhere else. Some sat and wept or stared at the sky. These sad, filthy people were all prisoners, I realized. I remembered our tour guide, Mr. Starks, telling us that the castle had first been a fort, then a prison. I was shoved into the darkness of the castle, dragged up the twisting stone steps. I heard a door slam behind me, then I heard the bolt sliding back into place. I was locked into the tiny cell at the top of Terror Tower.